0: I think it's going to rain and it's going to stop. This is I Am a Griefist, a childhood cancer grief journey podcast. Get that mic in front of you, woman. Okay. Good morning. Good morning. How are you?
1: I'm uh, a little bit tired, but I'm okay. Why are you tired? Just life
0: Life. (laughs) okay all right that's cool well wrapped up ian last time yeah oh that one was a a doozy yes
1: they were dealing with so much really. i know and it just seemed like it happened so fast and for even with ours we were three and a half and it just feels like three and a half years of dealing with it and it feels like it Went by so fast, but yeah. theirs really did go by fast. They got told so fast, yeah. There wasn't even a chance to take a breath. Yeah, that you just did right now. Yep. Yeah.
0: Well, we have another griefist on today.
1: I know. Guest I'm griefist. This one. Okay. Yes, griefist. Okay,
0: why are you excited?
1: Well, because of her experience and some credentials, and yeah, seems like a lot of folks would benefit from her information. So.
0: Yeah, so this one's going to be a little bit different for us because we actually have like a professional on and we're not professional. So I'm a little bit intimidated, but I think it's going to be great. So we're meeting today. I'm going to read her bio that she sent in a little bit, and I'm sure she'll go a little bit deeper into what she specializes in. Mm -hmm. So her name is Michelle and Michelle is a certified grief recovery specialist, parent mentor, and founder of Good Grief Parenting, whose purpose is to support parents who are raising young bereaved siblings after child loss. See, that's amazing. Her mission is to be a voice for the youngest of grievers and to help parents nurture and understand the unique needs of children who have lost a sibling in early childhood. When Michelle's Six-year-old son died of cancer. Her daughter said, Mommy, half of me is gone. She was just three and a half years old. Even though Michelle was teaching early childhood parenting classes and had a master's in early childhood education, she didn't know how best to help her daughter. This inspired her to become the support she had needed most during that time so that parents like her wouldn't have to go it alone. She spent more than 20 years learning all she can about early childhood sibling loss, its lifelong impact on the surviving sibling, and how parents can help their bereaved young child grow up
1: whole and happy. That's amazing.
0: I'm like, where are my tissues? Cuz I'm I'm already like <laughs> really really intrigued to hear what she has to offer.
1: Yeah. And like I said, it's, I'm sure it's going to help a whole mess of people that are dealing with it oh right now. Oh my God,
0: I know. And to put into perspective, maybe some of the behaviors we experienced with the sibling mm-hmm. and what that really translates to, right? right? And I might be jumping the gun here, but I, I'm
1: just like, I'm ready to, I'm ready to do this. Are you ready to do this? I'm ready. I'm ready to hear what we can do to, to help them. Cause really, I think we're not only dealing with our own loss, but having to try to figure out what is the best way to help our surviving children. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: All right. Let's do this woman. I'm ready. Okay. Here we go. (laughs) All right. Our griefest guest, please introduce yourself.
2: Hi, I'm Michelle Benyo, and I'm the mom of two. My son, David, was diagnosed with rhabdomyosarcoma at the age mm. of four and a half, and his sister was 15 months old at the time. She is now 25. Wow. And she lived without her brother since she was three and a half. So mm. he's, he uh, journeyed with his cancer for about two and a half years, and died way back in May of 2000.
0: Wow. So you've got quite a number of years of grief that you can share your experience with us.
2: Yes. And I, you know, as I was preparing for this conversation, um, because we will be talking about the work I do and the work I do is so focused on his sister yes. um, and her sibling loss but in preparing for talking to you i i've actually written journals i started writing journals today that as soon as i knew he was coming and so i've been back in my journals looking at those days and wow. yeah it's it's amazing many of you are so much closer to your loss than i am but I, you know when you when i think about it and when i think about the details i just Go right back there Mm -hmm. where where you are. Mm -hmm. So, yeah.
0: So let's hear all about David. You said you journaled before he got here. Tell us about that.
2: Well, I did. He, of course, was my first child. I got married in my my mid-30s, so I wasn't a young mom. Um, And I was married about five. Well, I guess I got married in my early 30s. Um, I, I was married about five years before we had him, and I was just so ready for him, and I started writing journals to him as soon as I knew he was coming, and I continued to write them, you know, throughout his life, and so there are just a lot of dreams in there, a lot of, you know, imagining when I was waiting for him to come, and when he came, he was just bright and precocious. And one of the things that prepared me for our future with cancer was that when he was born, I was just, I had this feeling of foreboding. I had this awful feeling and Mm. i knew it wasn't baby blues i thought what i'm experiencing isn't baby blues but there was something just really disconcerting and it lasted for a long time probably the first year of his life and i i mean it was in the background you know when he was eventually diagnosed i i actually happened to mention this to the doctor once and he said michelle You'd be surprised how many moms tell me that, that wow. they sort of had this feeling of foreboding before wow. they ever experienced this. So, of course, at the time, I didn't know what it was or that it really had any meaning, but I, it was definitely a feeling that I wasn't going to see him grow up. That was definitely wow. the feeling that I had, and it was very disconcerting for four and a half years He was just a normal, beautiful, uh, we called him sunshine. He had my curls, but they were blonde. He (laughs) had blonde hair and and my curls. And he really was just very precocious. He was tender hearted. He was just bright and Mm. exuberant. Mm. And he was a wonderful big brother, but he had been um, sort of the apple of our eye, you know, until his sister was born. So I, I'd forgotten this until I was looking at the journals today that after she came, because I remember them being very close and him loving her and her loving him. And they always did. But he did struggle a lot after she came mm. with, you know, having the limelight taken yeah, yeah. from because mm-hmm. he really had been just the center of our world, of course, as children are. Mm-hmm. And I was a second born and my uh, sister, my older sister, was so clearly my parents' favorite. <laughs> I mean, and, I mean, this is factual. Sure. <laughs> right? And um, so when I had my second born, my daughter, I was really cognizant of the the second born. And so you know, I really did. I mean, I didn't neglect him, but I definitely you know tried to give her attention and so on. So anyway, so, but they were, you know, they were very close. He was just a loving big brother. She was an adoring little sister Mm. and he was very smart and he was kind of a little problem solver. His preschool teacher used to tell me, you know, how good he was at figuring things out and solving problems. And with me, he was the kind of kid that just really was loving with me. Mm. mom often have those relationships with their sons. And that is something that I think about now is that he would have been just an adoring son Mm, for me to grow up with. And he was that way so much as a a young boy. I remember one time when he was outside playing in the winter with all, you know, I'm in Minnesota with all of his warm winter clothes on, and I had told him I was going to go shopping. I had told him that before he went outside, and I hadn't left yet, and I was sitting in my office, and he came trudging in with snow and all of his clothes, and he came into my room. He said, oh, I just wanted to tell you I love you before you leave. He had remembered oh. I was <laughs> and he just you know thought oh i can't let her go without me. so he came in with the snow and everything oh. <laughs> so yeah so that's who david was he was so he really was tender hearted in a way that when he got his cancer i thought this child can't get cancer mm. this child you know won't be able to handle it mm. he did handle it very very well but you know i was i was fearful for mm-hmm. him uh, because of who he was when he got his cancer.
0: So tell us the events leading up to a diagnosis. What did? How did you know something was wrong? Well, Were there symptoms?
2: I knew something was wrong because again, he was diagnosed in December and I was watching him play outside. It was December 1st of 1997 and he was playing outside with his friends And he, you know, he had winter clothes on and he kept putting his hands inside the front of his pants. And I was watching him and he kept doing this. And finally, I called him to the door and I said, honey, what are you doing? And he said, I'm feeling these bumps. Mm. And so I brought him in and and looked at his groin. And he had, um, as it turns out, they were lymph nodes that were um sort of protruding from from his his uh, groin, his pelvic area there, and there were about three or four of them poking out and Wow, could feel them. And so we took him to the doctor and she said, Oh, it's probably an infection' And she put him on an antibiotic and it it didn't they didn't go away at all. And then, you know, we didn't know what was going on. And his dad actually examined him. And um, was just kind of checking out his body to see, you know, the lymph nodes were draining something from somewhere. And he found the area between David's legs, the perineal area, was as hard as a rock. Mm. And that was where his grapefruit-sized tumor was. It was inside him. Between his legs, and, and his, it was his dad who actually found it. Oh, my and goodness. And so then we, you know, did the, we tested it, and, and it was cancer, and the world crashed. Yeah. And we were on that journey. And his preschool teacher said, well, that kind of explains why he'd been, you know, when they had to sit in the circle, he was kind of being antsy and mm. couldn't sit still, because he's sitting on this. Mm. So,
0: So what was he diagnosed with? You mentioned it before. Very new to me. I haven't heard from it or about it. So, tell us a little more about what that cancer is.
2: It's rhabdomyosarcoma, and it's a soft tissue sarcoma. And I remember at the time, I'm not really sure how rare or not it is. I've certainly known other people who have it. I, I was, I thought at the time, we were told that it was pretty rare. But I don't know. I mean cancer is cancer. It doesn't matter yeah, whether right, it's rare yeah. or not. And yeah. there are so many different kinds of it. And but it often um it often appears in sort of that area. Mm-hmm. Um but it can also appear lots of kids get it in their head, like in their eye and so or in their neck. And so um, but that and it's a cancer that, you know, the first time around it had a 80 some percent chance of survival but it's one of those cancers that if it recurs then the I mean back then and I don't I mean that was 21 years ago so I don't really know the progress that may have been made with that cancer but back then if it recurred which in my son's case it did Mm -hmm. that's when prognosis is is just really really bad Mm -hmm. so
0: so i so, I have two questions already. Is one is had you had any previous experience with cancer, family background with no, no, okay.
2: There was no cancer in my family at all. Uh, no cancer in my husband's family, and I had really not dealt with any you know, any kind of loss like this or or any kind of illness. I mean, both of our families were very healthy. In fact, as a pregnant mom, I was extremely healthy. Mm. I ate healthy. I, I was always so amazed at where did this come from? Yeah. You know, we were a healthy family with, I mean, my, the genes in my family were really strong, healthy, not a lot of illness. And so, That was always a mystery to me where it came from. And, of course, we know that, you know, cancer can, anybody can get it, and we don't know how it happens. So, Mm -hmm.
0: because you didn't have a ton of cancer in the family. So when you hear and you got the diagnosis and the tests came back that it was cancer, what was that like for you?
2: It was devastating. I, I, you know, it was, I mean, as it... Nobody wants to hear that word cancer with their family and certainly not with their child. And the other thing that is so interesting to me is that a neighbor boy who was older than my kids, but a good friend of our family who lived a couple houses down prior to my son being diagnosed, he had had a diagnosis. I don't remember what it was, but he was treated with chemotherapy and it was really kind of scary he it wasn't cancer Mm -hmm. and he recovered from it and he's still alive today and um, but he went through that and it was very scary Mm -hmm. and then a woman at work her daughter was diagnosed with bone cancer Mm. and both of these things happened in my sphere at the same time before David had cancer wow and I remember thinking So this was my first close experience with this, with these two families that I associated closely with. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, actually having the kind of thought where I was experiencing this through them and, you know, was thinking about what it was like for them and was so, uh, you know, was thinking, I'm glad that's not happening to me and kind of thinking, the law of statistics. I don't, uh, you know, I used to do this as back then. Uh, I mean, after David, I think I didn't ever do it again. But before that, it'd be like, you'd hear about something happening to another family. And you'd think, well, what are the chances of that happening to me? So, you know, when I had these two experiences, I kind of felt like that gave me a better chance of not ever experiencing something like that. It was sort of like, anyway and then i did yeah. and yeah it's just interesting the way our minds go yeah. and for me you know when when i had no experiences like that and then just before my son got diagnosed i did have some experiences that brought it kind of close and i i remember my thought process around that yeah. thinking it's probably the closest i was going to be to cancer with kids and and it wasn't as it turned out
0: wow so upon diagnosis, the doctor shared with you an 80% cure rate. What was the what was the um, treatment? What was that? Yeah, it
2: was something like that. I remember at the time he was saying that it was a good survival rate. And I was feeling like that's not good enough. No. You know, you're
1: right. Mm-hmm. Tell me
2: it's telling me it's 90. I mean, no, that's not good enough. I was really scared by mm-hmm. it. Of course. As we went on through our journey later, I thought as long as there's a 5% chance, yes. he can be that five, you know, I yes. think flipped. But in the beginning, I remember thinking that's not good enough. Yes. And I was just really terrified by this. His treatment was chemotherapy. That was what they were going to do then a year of it. You know, I told you, I went back and looked at my journals and I was kind of tracking the the time frame here. And, you know, he was, uh, it was December 1st that I discovered it. And it was uh, December 16th was when we were told your son has cancer. And I remember, you know, going to Children's Hospital and they took us to the playroom and we were sitting on these little Kid chairs, and the doctor told us rhabdomyosarcoma. And then he had to go through chemo. And he, by December 31st, I wrote down we took some pictures December 31st. And his, and I, and I, every time I look at those pictures, I remember that this was when his hair, we first started noticing his hair was coming Mm, out. mm He'll his yeah. girls, but they were coming out. And I wrote in my journal that his hair was gone by mid-February. It was wow. All gone. And by then, his um, his tumor had shrunk significantly after just two treatments. Wow. The plan was to shrink this big tumor mm-hmm. and then uh, surgically remove yeah, it. Yeah, that's what I was so going to ask. Yeah. The margin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the thing was that it, it, it disappeared so fast. It, that tumor just totally disappeared very quickly. And then they had to decide whether to do surgery anyway, because they wanted to do surgery to get the clean part, but they didn't expect the tumor to go as fast as it did. So then it's like, well, we're not, we're not even sure. We'll know exactly where the tumor was because now mm. it's gone. But they decided to do surgery and we had the best, surgeon you know that they had and we were very confident of him and and he was confident that he had gotten that he had found where the tumor had been he felt confident about it and and they got a clean margin and they you know they felt like they got it and this was you know in February, I guess. I'm not sure exactly when it was in February. Anyway, but then they said, of course, we needed to continue to do all of the chemo to keep it away because if they didn't continue the whole year protocol, then, you know, it could come back. And so he continued to do the whole year. And yeah, and we went to at the end of his treatment, which was he was then done in December of 98 and everything looked really good and make a wish make a wish wanted to give us a trip and I remember at the time you know we were thinking well our son's not dying I I thought make a wish was for a terminal y- yes. yeah that's something you yes. said I told you when I listened to your story <laughs> your story mm-hmm. was a lot like mine mm-hmm. in the way things happened because yeah. Well, that was when I learned that Make-A-Wish isn't just for Terminal Kids because we thought we were going to, you know, we thought we were out of the woods. Yeah. So, we went to Disney in February. I mean, we went to Make-A-Wish and we stayed at Give Kids the World. Oh. And the <laughs> of course we did, yes, and, and met Mayor Clayton. And yes. Went and had Sundays in the in the ice cream shop. And, oh, you know. So, yeah, when you were talking about that, I thought,
0: we've
2: been there. So we did our Make-A-Wish trip, and that was in 1999, and when we got back, we found out that my dad actually at that time then did get cancer he had bladder cancer
1: oh wow oh, okay
2: but it but it wasn't very serious and he just uh, i mean he just had surgery didn't even have to do any treatment and oh he, wow he was fine he didn't he didn't die until you know 16 years after my son and so he lived a long time after that and one thing that started happening to david after he was done with his chemo was that he started to have really, he was really disparaging about himself and he would talk about himself as dumb. He would tell me really desperately that he wanted to die. One day he said to me, mommy, I'm going to get a knife and cut my stomach open. I mean it. He was just, he was just emotionally, in turmoil. Oh my gosh. And so I thought, okay, I've got to do something about this. And I uh, really had to search. I wanted a male therapist, a male Mm -hmm. psychologist, and I was able to find one. His name was Dr. John. And so I started having David meet with him and it helped tremendously. Okay. To this day, I thank that man for, you know, giving me David back because He was able to really work with David. And we actually did start giving David sertraline. One thing that we do have on both sides of our family, my husband's and mine, is, you know, some of that depression, anxiety stuff. And so, you know, we did end up treating David with that and it helped a lot. How old was David at this time? He was five.
0: Wow. Five years old saying some of those things.
2: Yeah, he would have been he was six in July of 1999. And so he was still five. And yeah, I mean, so disturbing to hear your child talking that way. It was just so, so upsetting for me. And for him, I just hated to see him doing this. And then um, we went on our trip. And then we started just sort of feeling like well, I guess in April then, I I'm, I'm trying to David relapsed twice, so I'm trying to keep my wow. stories. So then in April he had his portacath taken out. He kept it in for 4 months after his treatment was done. And then, you know, they did all the tests. April 29th they did the CT scan, the MRI, the chest x-ray, everything was totally clear. They took his his port out and 2 months later his cancer was back.
0: How did and it show up? Just through a
2: scan? He, he started feeling, he started feeling it. Mm. And I remember going, you know, and the hospital had sort of said, you can go back to your regular doctor now, your other pediatrician now. And when we went to her, I told you that David was really tenderhearted. Her response to that was Well, you know, David's kind of, he's probably just kind of, I'm paraphrasing, you know, making a big deal of it. I'm sure it's nothing. It's just that David is so sensitive kind of
0: Mm -hmm. thing.
2: But but I knew, I mean, I, I just really felt. And we did go back then to his oncologist then, and he agreed something's not quite you know, there's something's a little suspicious here. So they did an MRI and his cancer was back and it was in his bone marrow now. Oh no! Uh, you know, so it had, I mean, before it had been pretty self, it had been self-contained in that one location. And now it was in his bone marrow. Wow! And, and this was when, you know, the prognosis now was, you know, not good at all. So what we did till the end of that year, we just really pulled out the stops on this poor little boy. And he did. And the other thing that David did from the beginning, when he first got his cancer and had to be in the hospital, he was feisty and he was uh, he fought the doctors. He fought the nurses. He was just feisty. And I was alarmed that he was this way but they all said, no, we like them this way because that means they're going to fight. And they said, it's OK. We can handle this. Wow. And, um, you know, and so it was good because it helped me as a parent. Um, and I was a brand new parent educator. I, I I told you that it was actually having my son. I was had been a, te- a classroom teacher and then I had gone into communications, and I was working in a school district doing communications, and I learned about when David was little, after I had him, before he had his cancer. And I learned about early childhood family education, which is a program that every school district in Minnesota has in in their public schools. And it's for families of kids who are pre-school age and it, they do children's programs for the children and parent programs for the parent. And I decided I wanted to do this as an educator. Cool. So, yeah. So when I was pregnant with my daughter, I was getting this licensure, getting my master's in family education. And I graduated with that and my license to do this um, parent education right before she was born. So when I was going through this at when... When my son was diagnosed, I was a parent educator. I was doing this. This was my work. But dealing with his emotions as a result of what he was going through, I mean, this stuff that I was experiencing was not at all typical, you know, all of the feelings and emotions that he had because Mm -hmm. of what he was going through and, you know, realizing that he felt dumb, you know, Mm -hmm. when he and all of these things. Um, was just heartbreaking and the things that his sister was going through with him you know where it was all of this was just heartbreaking so I was really glad to find Dr. John and to be made aware of you know the behaviors that he was doing and the experiences that he was having and how people at the children's hospital worked with it and you know and, and adapted to it and still were able to affirm my son. But when his cancer came back then, he had to have six weeks of radiation every Mm. day. And they did a, I don't remember what order they did it in. We did the radiation first, and it was only 90 seconds. But he had to be totally put under every morning because he became a cheetah. You know, he would be a cheetah, and he wasn't going to lay still for them to do this. (laughs) No way. He was a cheetah. And uh, so they, we had to totally sedate him wow. to just to get 90 seconds of radiation every morning for six weeks. Wow. And then, then they, I think, I don't remember which they did first. I think maybe then they did the stem cell okay. harvest. And he got the first stem cell transplant that was ever done at Children's Hospital in Minneapolis. Whoa. Uh, so they did the radiation they did the stem cell transplant um and then they just hit him with high high dose chemotherapy just i mean it's all poison yeah yeah it's just all all this stuff that we put in them but the regular chemotherapy it had always amazed me i mean he would get nauseous from it and get sick from it and Have to get blood transfusions and so on. But as far as his energy and his disposition, you know, that first year through, it would amaze me that we'd come home from his treatments and he'd hop out of the car and wouldn't even go in the house and would run off and play. Yeah. You know, so these kids, as you know, you know, they're amazing going through this.
0: Resilient. Mm hmm.
2: And I know you had, I think your story of relapse with your little one was kind of similar to this as far as how it happens. So we did the, uh, as I said, we did the radiation, the stem cell transplant, the high dose chemo. He had his, you know, his tests and his scans that said that everything was gone, but it was um, back again in in just really short order. Mm -hmm. So I think the next I think it was February then in 2000 when we knew that it was back or maybe it was before then. Let me see. Yeah, he did the stem cell transplant the end of November and January 18th of 2000. He was cancer free. But February 16th of 2000, just a month later, his cancer was back.
0: Wow! Yeah. And similarly, relapsing
2: symptoms. I think they did. A, it was a they did an MRI. I don't remember how whether it was a routine MRI a month later or if if he had symptoms again. And then um, we he said at the time, I don't want to go back to the hospital.
0: Mm, yeah. And
2: Said you're not going to. I mean, they said there was nothing, they had nothing left to do.
0: Oh my gosh.
2: And we actually did, we did, I started looking then into alternative things, you know, and I found some alternative treatments for adults, but they'd say, you know, you can't really do some of those things for kids because they need the nutrition, you know, they Mm -hmm. can't be treated in the same way. I took. We took him to a. This is something that I, I. I don't even really know. I. Well, we took him to a qigong master. There's a man here in. I live in the Twin Cities, and he's very well known. And we we took him to this man, and we had a hard time getting him in. And when we got him in to see this man, this man said, "Oh, he's got such a strong life force." But this man was so busy that he couldn't fit David in. Mm. And I don't I mean, to this day, when I think about it, I try to remember where my head was at the time, because it's like this was a matter of life and death. Yeah, yeah. My son ended up dying. And could this man have saved him? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah, I I don't know. But we tried all these other things. But ultimately, we just kept him home. We went back to Disney World actually in February right away because we um, we had done this Make-A-Wish trip and David's wish really was Disney World. Oh. And they sent us to SeaWorld where the kids actually had kind of a bad experience because they oh. got... They got totally splashed by this <laughs> big whale or something, and it upset both of them terribly. Oh. Of them. And We just wanted Disney World, we wanted more Disney World. Yeah, you know, they gave us a bunch of other stuff, which was fun too, but we didn't really get as much time as Disney World as we at Disney World as we wanted, sure. So we went back and we had just really a, a wonderful trip. Oh, good. Um, disney world and then i took my children to see my family my father my parent, my dad lived in georgia both of my parents did i guess they were i guess they were both there then and my sister was there with her kids that's not where i grew up but that's sort of where everyone migrated to and so I took my kids to see everybody in Georgia because I knew the only advantage, if there is one, to losing your child this way is, you know, that I knew I knew he was going to die. And before he was in such bad shape that we couldn't do anything, uh, you know, I took, I, we went to Disney World. we uh, I took him to see my family. And if anyone asks me, Michelle, what's the most Perfect moment in your life. It was when I was on this plane taking my kids. It was just me and Deanna and David going to Georgia. And we were, you know, above the clouds and the sun was streaming in the the window, you know, when a plane is above the clouds. And Deanna and David were sitting beside each other and he was reading to her and they had their heads together. And, Mm. you know, just quiet in the plane when you're up above. It was just quiet. And they were sitting there and I looked at them and I thought this moment is perfect. It just felt perfect to me. And at the time I thought, Michelle, you're never going to see this again. Your son is dying. But that moment was perfect.
0: Mm -hmm. So we've talked to families and one of the challenges that we faced and what we continue to hear from other families is how the conversation goes with sharing with family, sharing with siblings that your child is dying. So, can you walk us through what that experience was like for you? Did you tell him? Did you have conversations yes. with his sibling? What was it like telling the family?
2: Yes. She was
1: too
0: little.
2: Um, well, just to tell you about the whole journey rather than, you know, packaging it up because it has a lot to do with what I'm doing now. Deanna was 15 months old Mm -hmm. when David was diagnosed. And when he went to the hospital the first night with his dad, she was despondent. Mm -hmm. She was wandering around the house making an inhuman sound, it was alarming to me. Mm. She'd throw herself on the floor, and if I'd go try to comfort her, she'd push me away. And she was, you know, leading me to his room and leading me to the garage door and just wailing. She was just despondent. She Mm. knew with every cell of her body that something was terribly wrong. And... As I went back and read my journals this morning, I was, and I remember this incident, and it's the one that I, you know, that I talk about because it was the first exposure. It was when I was aware of how deeply this was going to impact her, mm-hmm. too. From Mm -hmm. the very beginning, Mm -hmm. which is what my work has ended up being all about, is this sibling. But when I was reading my journals, I saw that quite a few other things I wrote about her, you know, and them. And the way that they cried for each other when they were apart. He'd cry when she wasn't there, and she'd cry when he wasn't there. And Mm. when um, I worked at the family center, the Eden Prairie, I did parent education, and they used to go to work with me. And the first day I went with her when he was in the hospital, she was crying and looking for him everywhere at the family center. And, you know, so in the beginning, we decided, and it was pretty much after that night when she did that. And we said, okay, we are not leaving her by herself. There are four of us in this family, and four of us are going through this. So when we were in the hospital, if both of us were there, she was there too. We didn't leave her. We live in a cul-de-sac that we live next door to a family with young kids. There are plenty of people we could have left her with, but we said, no, she's going to be with us because he was at a children's hospital. So they were equipped for siblings. So she went through the whole journey with him. She saw what he went through. She saw his pain she saw you know where he was she saw other kids like him and this became you know her reality and the very first day when we were trying to figure out what was wrong with david and we went to see the surgeon after we'd seen the doctors and they needed to you know investigate what was going on in him we were talking with david in the room And he said, the adults were talking. And finally, he said, what's wrong with me? Mm. And we realized we were talking about him, but not talking to him. Mm -hmm. And when we went to Children's Hospital, and this wasn't Children's Hospital, but when we went to Children's Hospital, the doctors said, just so you know, mom and dad, when we come into the room, we're coming to talk to David first. Mm. So we learned at children's hospital to just talk to our children, Deanna, David, when we knew David was going to die. And when we knew how serious it was, they both knew how from the beginning, how serious it was. Mm. And when David said you know I don't go, want to go to the hospital he was heading into his well no he had his sixth birthday he was heading into his seventh birthday he died in May his birthday was in July and he asked us do you think I'll live to my uh, seventh birthday and we said no honey we don't think you will. And we talked to him about it and we talked to Deanna about it. I mean, it was happening. What, you know, you can't hide it from them. And he was worried that he was going to miss us. He was going to miss Deanna. He was going to miss us. That's what he was afraid of. And I asked him if I could keep his, his Senny, who was his toy that he kept all the time. I asked him if I could keep it. And he told me I could, Mm. Um, you know, we had these conversations. The other thing that I that I need to tell you about my journey, when David was born, I had this sense of foreboding Mm -hmm. before he was diagnosed, before I saw him outside playing in December of 1997. It was Christmas time getting to be the holiday season and I was in the Michael's store. Um, do you have Michael's stores? Yes. The craft stores? Yes. Yes. I was in one of those stores and I saw this little yarn angel. And I don't usually buy stuff like that. It was cute, but it was not really anything special. But for some reason, I was just compelled. I wanted to buy this little yarn angel. And it was called the Angel of Peace. And when I was buying it, I thought, oh, I wish it were the angel of joy, because to me, Christmas is joy, yeah. mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, and I cared what the angel was called, and I, and it was so odd, because I was buying, it, it was the card that it was on that said that it wasn't on the angel itself, so it's like, why does it even matter, mm-hmm. but it was just a few days later that I found out my son had cancer, and I thought, ah, Now I know why I bought an angel of peace. That was something I just didn't characteristically ever do. And for me to care what it was called, and it was called the angel of peace. I just knew that that was something that I was given as a reassurance. And I I do have my faith. I am a believer. And it was a big part of me going through all of this. You know, just the idea that I had sort of been prepared when he was born, the idea that I was given this angel of of peace, and uh, we belonged to a church that did a lot of praying for us, Mm -hmm. and we saw things happen that we felt were an answer to prayer, and there were two other specific things that I want to share, because really, God was in this whole journey for me. And he's why when I lost my son, the way I looked at it was, okay, now what do I do with this? You know, there's meaning-making. We all, when we lose a loved one, meaning-making is something we have to do. And for me, you know, that was just believing there was a meaning in it. But the other two things that happened were... I had lived in the house, it's actually the same house, I've lived in it for 30 years, but when David died or when David was sick, we had lived there for a number of years and we had lived there actually for uh, seven years. And I had misplaced a number of years earlier, my favorite apple crisp recipe Mm. that, uh, that I made every fall. And I had misplaced it years before. And every fall I would wanna make it and I would look for it and I would never find it. And I was so frustrated cause I'd try other apple crisp recipes and they just weren't the same. So this September of, I don't remember which year it was but when David was sick, his dad took David and Deanna to see his brother for the weekend to give me a weekend home alone in September and i was home alone and i thought i want to make apple crisp mm-hmm. and i did what i have done had done for a number of falls since i lost the recipe i started going through my kitchen again i mean i'd pull out every drawer i'd shake cookbooks i'd rifle through everything i had done this years before i started to do it again and i stood in the middle of my kitchen and i stopped and i said god you know where this recipe is. I don't find it. I'm gonna go crazy. The minute I stopped my rant, I bent down and I looked to the side underneath the cabinet on the wall. And from behind that cabinet, there was a little corner of a piece of paper sticking down. Wow. And I pulled it out with my thumbnail and it was my apple. Oh, Christmas my goodness. gosh. <laughs> um, first and foremost,
0: I hope you share this recipe because this sounds like oh. a magical recipe to have.
2: <laughs> it is. It's Michelle's Miracle Apple Crisp. And yes. I, say, if I get no other miracle in my life. That is a bona fide miracle because that's wow. exactly the way it happened. One minute I'm yeah. And then for some unexplained reason I'm bending down like this and I see it and I get it wow. so God's fingerprints on it it's now in a plastic bag very carefully put back in my recipe box every time I make it so I never lose it love again. it um, but that was and that was just you know God in the details this mama needed her recipe and my <laughs> God, he gave it to me and so yes um and it's You know, it's not that different. I, I, but it does. And whenever I make it for people, they say it really is good, Michelle.
0: I would love to try it. Yes. Yes. (laughs) It is September.
1: Yeah, Yeah, it's time for it. it. It's time to do it.
2: Now I'm eating, now I eat keto, and oats aren't keto, and apples aren't keto. but I actually was no keto here, Michelle. (laughs) I mean, there are some things you just have to eat. Yes. Yes. I will share the recipe. That's
0: awesome. We'd love to make it.
2: And then the other thing that happened in our journey, which was part of the, my children being prepared was when David's cancer was back the last time, the Wednesday we had an MRI before we knew that it was cancer, but thought it was or something. We had the MRI scheduled for a Friday and the Wednesday before he and Deanna, by now we're sleeping together in the room next door to us and we had the baby monitor on. And at two o'clock in the morning, David was ta- woke me up and he was talking to someone. And he was saying, I don't want to die. I don't want to die. And then he listened and he said, all right, I'll come. So I heard this, we heard this, His I woke his dad up and he heard it too. And David had always, for all of his life, he had had occasional night terrors mm. and slept really fitfully. And he had kind of done this this night. And we went in and we comforted him and settled him down. And the next morning when he got up, we kind of asked, you know, we kind of talked to him to see if he remembered a conversation. And he just remembered that we had gone in there and that Mm. we had settled him down at some point. But he was clearly... At peace after that, he never, ever slept fitfully again. He never had to sleep again. He just was, he was at peace. He was more mature. He was helpful. He was happy. He was upbeat. He was was just really a different child. Wow. He had had his MRI and it showed that, yes, his cancer was back. He had to go back in now and get a, a, a med comp. Catheter put in, and when he was going into surgery, the chaplain said to him, "David, are you afraid?" And David said, "No, I'm not afraid. I have Jesus in my heart, and oh. Jesus loves me more than mommy and daddy do." Oh. And we had not told him this. Oh. Uh. This was not Roxanne said that too. No. This was not from us. And so we knew. I mean, this was after he had had his conversation, you know, and I kept saying, okay, what else could this mean? Please, you know, he said, all right, I'll come. Please, you know, don't have that mean what I think it means, but, you know, but it did. So I just really felt held through all of this and just you know, had confirmed for me that, I, you know, I know where my son is. And mm-hmm. the night that he died, he he started to, you know, we kept him home. And he started, of course, to get worse and worse. We had home care, you know, he was getting fentanyl. And he was the last words he ever said to me were, Oh, mommy, oh, because his head hurt so badly. Oh. And then you know we just upped his morphine or fentanyl or whatever it was that we were giving him until he you know kind of went went out of consciousness or awareness and he was that way for the last couple of days and um you know i would i i mentioned this in another conversation where people were asking me about the details but you know and i don't know if you had occasion to experience this i'm sure people listening have but you know he had this catheter on and we started to see bits of he I mean we knew he was just deteriorating inside because we'd see kind of bits of flesh kind of coming through it it was just you know he's lying there it was awful Mm, and we knew he was very close to death and I said to his dad one night I was holding David I used to sing to him, among other things, I would sing the song on eagle's wings. And David called that song, God, because it starts out and God will raise you up on eagle's wings. And David used to always ask me to sing, mommy, would you sing God? So I was singing this song to him and holding him on my lap and he was, you know, not not conscious. And I said to and I'm crying and knowing that we're losing him. And I said to his dad, we have to figure out a way to get him in our bed with us tonight. You have to get, you know, so we can get all of his paraphernalia, his bag and his tubes and everything. Get our bed ready so we can bring him in bed with us. And when I said that to his dad, David smiled at me, Mm. even though he was you know, out of it. I knew he heard that. Mm. We did get him in bed with us. And that was the night that he died. Mm. So he died in our bed with us. And, And then when he died at about three in the morning, and we waited, we kept him home with us. We didn't call anybody. We waited till Deanna got up. She got up at about 7.30 and we told her her brother had died and we had him there and she helped his dad take out the line, you know, disconnect him from all of his paraphernalia, take his tube, unhook his tube and stuff. And she was sitting there like this and she said, God should have let David grow up before he took him to heaven. And she was just kind of mad. And we called the um, funeral home to come and get him, and you know he came. They came, and we went and told his kindergarten teacher and his school that he was gone. And, oh my um, gosh! Yeah. When
1: I when we were in the hospital after the baby passed, I called her teacher. What's that like? What's that like to have to make those phone calls? It's it's awful, but she played a good piece of our life with. Mm -hmm. her she loved going to school and it it was because of her teachers just the Mm -hmm. kindest kindest person
2: david's teacher and for any teachers listening to this you know just know how special you are yes they are very special in the kids lives. oh because david was you know i said he was tender-hearted he did not he was not wanting you know and he had to go to kindergarten after he'd been through what he'd been through and while he was still in it and he didn't want to go to kindergarten. He was really, I mean, I was afraid we weren't going to get him there. Yeah. And so I found out, I asked if we could come and meet his teacher before school started. So we went to meet her and she was a beautiful woman, kind, sweet. He. We walked into her room. He saw, he laid eyes on her. He was wearing a ball cap because he was bald. He laid eyes on her and he took off his ball cap. <laughs> and that was it. That was it. No problem at all. I mean, sometimes we that's had all sat it
1: takes. Yeah. <laughs>
2: before I got him to lay eyes on her, we had been out in the car and he didn't want to go in. And I, you know, I was afraid, but he laid eyes on her. And the, and she was so good to him. When he was in the hospital, she made photo albums yeah. for him. Mm. When he was dying, um, the one regret I have is she came and read to him every day at the oh. same time. Mm. And when he was dying, we had to go to the we knew that it was time to let the funeral home know And we had gone to the funeral home when she usually comes to read to him. And we forgot to tell her. Mm. And so she couldn't read to him that day. And so that last day, she couldn't read to him. Mm. But which I was always so sad about. Yeah. But. For years, I think through the rest of what would have been his school career, she would send me a card every year. And the year that he died, they were doing a, a Mother's Day program. They were rehearsing it. They were. It was going to be a big deal. They had all these songs and things, and they had food and everything. And do you know that she did... The Mother's Day program with the entire class early, just for me. Oh. Um, she invited me in And they did they had the refreshments and everything just for me. Oh nice. Um, and is that? David was gone. David didn't live to do the Mother's Day program. Mm. So she was, yes, she was precious.
1: They are amazing.
0: Yeah. They really are. Well, I think this is a great place for us to take a break so when we come back Michelle we'll go into what happens after how do you cope how do you move in whatever direction that might mean yes. so okay. we'll continue this on the next one
2: hey, good kid. love you